Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of my episode with Sam Conniff and Catherine Templer-Lewis, recorded in 2021. We discuss all things uncertainty, a big theme that feels especially relevant right now. In this episode, we discuss their new project, The Uncertainty Experts, which is a powerful three-part interactive documentary, scientifically proven to reduce our fear of the unknown, reduce our anxiety, increase our empathy, and improve decision-making and problem-solving, which sounds just what we need. And that's why Sam and Catherine went on a mission to deliver this to as many people as possible. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I learned so much from this one. Lots of stuff about psychology, lots of stuff about the brain. And I kind of do feel a little less uncertain, or at least a little bit okay with being uncertain. So I hope you enjoy listening to this one. So I'm so excited to be joined by Catherine and Sam. And this is a new project. And I feel very honoured to be talking to you about this because it's really exciting. And I spent a lot of time on the website last night and we're going to talk all about the uncertainty experts. Could we please start off with a very broad question, which you can both jump in on. Is now more uncertain in actual terms? Are we living in an uncertain time, global travel, pandemics, social media? etc or do we just feel more uncertain because I think the world has always been sort of uncertain I mean you've got a really good point there because of course uncertainty you know some people say it's the only certain thing and we will always be faced with uncertainty however there has scientifically been proven uh, that we are living at the most uncertain time in all of history a guy called Ahir has done an uncertainty scale and we've seen people being measured over the last couple of decades and their tolerance to uncertainty how uncertain they're feeling because remember it's a feeling as well is on the increase There's also a a World Uncertainty Index that was launched a couple of years ago, and it's backed by various people from the IMF and The Economist also do a tracker on semantic use of words around uncertainty. And so it does seem, yes, and it's because there's this um, uh, culmination of threats and challenges. And one of the, uh, I think, slightly more dramatic uh, measures of this is the World Doomsday Clock. So it came into being after the Second World War, an international confederacy of objective scientists put together the doomsday clock and they manually changed the, uh, the time on it to see how close we are to our own destruction. <laughs> and, and up until uh, last year, um, the closest it ever got was three minutes to midnight. And that was around like the Suez crisis when we were going to nuke each other. And then last year it moved to 30 seconds to midnight, the closest it's oh ever been. So yes, we are on a precipice. Wow. And... Could I ask you, Sam, a little bit about your personal journey to getting here? Because I have followed your work for a long time. I remember emailing you once and being like, I listen to your YouTube talks and I'm feeling down. Like you have this amazing energy about you and everyone who knows you says this. But I do feel like you've kind of shown a more vulnerable side over the past few years of the entrepreneurial way of living and everything you've been through. Is it right that this has come from a bit of a personal prompt as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I found that part of the whole entrepreneur journey a little bit difficult anyway, like finding your your voice and your mask and the kind of inauthentic, the authentic inauthenticity of presenting yourself in different spaces and to different people and places. And it's kind of developing that as a skill. I, I think I've become quite good, you know, multilingual in different environments and then trying to find a way where you're not like presenting. Um, and the whole journey into being an author and the kind of personal turbulence that came with that because I was left my business and I went through a separation. Um, and then everything got really good. I found my feet again. 
And the kind of work that came with being an author was incredibly flexible and it was well paid and I could look after my kids and everything was going really well, actually. And I just kind of found some stability. And then it all came to a complete crash in March 2020 because my business model relied on me traveling and breathing on people in rooms. Like, for, you know, <laughs> public speaking was not a good pandemic business model. And the personal circumstances meant that very, very quickly I ran into the worst financial position I've been in in my adult life. I was very became very, very vulnerable. And with that came all sorts of guilt and shame because, you know, I'm a grown man with two kids, you know, I shouldn't, that shouldn't happen after all that I've done. And it did just very, very, very quickly um, catch up on me. And yeah, and, and near panicked, you know, it got to a place where I was, you know, being advised by good friends, you know, looking at insolvency, insolvency, it got very close to the edge. And in that moment of really looking for guidance, I turned to, you know, I've got some excellent mentors, but when you looked out to the kind of the leadership that was on offer, it just really struck me that no one was able to tell the truth. No one was able to say, I don't know. Mm. And there we were in this massive moment where nobody fucking knew. And what we needed to hear was, was, I remember seeing those two bloody plinths and on one side was this pseudoscience and the other side was pseudo strategy. And to me always there was this missing plinth in the middle where the humanity would have been, where the, where the creativity would have been, where, you know, 20 years ago probably when the Archbishop of Canterbury or something. And now, I mean, I don't know who it'd be, Judy Dench probably. Um, but they just weren't there to have a conversation. We don't know what to do right now, but it will be all right. We'll be all right. You know, humans can be their best in this moment. And so I went looking for people who could who could speak into that space where we don't know what to do, but this is how we work stuff out. Yeah, amazing. Because the real theme of what I found from this project was that we're all so scared and fear is like the elephant in the room and no one can admit that they're fearful. And it's just we're like having this cloak around us of, yeah, we're fine. We know exactly what's happening. We, we're in control. And I did the uncertainty test on your website and I got medium and I felt like I was trying to act really confident in the test. Like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I love to not know what I'm doing. I love just, you know, being put on the spot. And actually, I realized at the end of that, that maybe there is an inherent feeling of I'll be fine because maybe my family will look after me or I'll have a roof over my head. Or I know that there's a phrase that we've been using with COVID, which is like, we're all in different boats, but we're weathering the same storm. Do you think each individual will be more uncertain than others. Do you know, it's a really good point that actually, and it's all very easy saying, you know, we're all yeah, sitting facing uncertainty, but people are sitting in it, like you say, in very different boats. And I suppose what we've seen is that from a scientific point of view, how we approach uh, uncertainty is very, very d- different. And some people they go to pieces. Some people feel fear. They can't admit it. And it drives you towards these sort of negative behaviours of safety, of hiding, of avoiding. And then you get these other people who seem to be able to step up to it and embrace it and look for opportunity and sort of have this superpower. You know, and you look at those people. I used to look at them and think, I want to be that. You know, I'm desperately anxious. And every time I sort of throw myself off a cliff, I think I'm going to, you know, hit the bottom. And what we found is that, yes, part of it, Some people are born like that. It's sort of nature nurture. For some people, it's things that have happened to them, people they've had teach them different strategies in their lives. But I think the most inspiring thing about this project that we found out is that for everybody, it's a malleable trait. You can change how you approach uncertainty. You can learn the skills you need uh, to be able to face it. And rather than feel that fear, or everyone will feel that fear, but rather than let that take you over, you can actually step up, look for opportunity, and suddenly be this sort of very pliable, creative be the best version of yourself. And when you picked the experts, because there are, there are loads on the website and you're working with them and they're the uncertainty experts, did you pick them based on how 
different they all were because there's such a variety and I guess they're all they're all going to come to uncertainty in a different way too. It connects to that previous point, which kind of inherently is about privilege as well. So there's some ubiquitous truth. So it's been, um, Catherine, you remind me, it was at the University of Tokyo research uh, that uncertainty is the biggest driver of global anxiety disorder in the world bar none. So a lot of people come to the project and like, well, uncertainty is not my problem. Anxiety is or exhaustion or I can't find my mojo or I just I'm, 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 I'm feeling indecisive. And those are all traits of the last year and a half and traits that we all experience. But underneath them all is uncertainty. So so treating exhaustion, anxiety, um, decisiveness can be symptomatic cures. And if you want to get to what's beneath it, uncertainty seems to sit behind nearly everything. So there is a there is a ubiquitous nature to it. But then the reason for going and securing that diverse range, because it became really clear to me early on when I started talking about it and I started seeking. The first advice I got was from a, a two guys who'd been in prison. That uh, I used to do a lot of mentoring work in prisons around entrepreneurship. And they gave me really great advice that was really good for me. And, and then the next person I spoke to was also a, an ex-refugee and he'd become a CEO. And the third person I spoke to was an ex-smuggler who's now a trauma specialist. And, and I found this advice life-changing. And then realized it was kind of these three fairly blokey blokes who'd given me some advice. and. You know, I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class man from Britain, like the most privileged person, you know, percentage in the world. And an uncertainty for a, a woman in Mexico or a, a, a parent of black children in America or, you know, a farmer in Bangladesh or anywhere else in the world is very, very different. And so it became a mission to to get a much more representative voice. And and then you realize the the further inequality within uncertainty. Speaking to, speaking to Hilda Nakabuye last week. She's kind of she's she's shorthand. She's described as the Greta Thunberg of the African continent because she leads Fridays for Future across multiple African countries. Um, she's very very clear. Uncertainty will affect women in the global south disproportionately. It affects women disproportionately anyway. And that was backed up. Resgardi was the last interview I did. A woman born in a Pakistani refugee camp. She was just named Young New Zealander of the Year for her human rights work. First Kurdish uh, lawyer to make bar in New Zealand. Just incredible stories of these turnarounds. And yes, um, it's true that people respond to it differently. It's true that it, there's a malleable trait to it, but there's an unfairness to the way that uncertainty affects us as well that needs to be addressed. Because am I right in thinking that obviously there's sort of a rebrand happening about uncertainty that you guys are doing, but we're not necessarily meant to be loving uncertainty it's okay to still be not like waving the flag for like I love to be uncertain in my life it's more how do we work with it alongside us and not be so scared of it is that is that sort of where we want to get to as a society? Yeah, absolutely. And I think sort of, you know, we hear these terms these days like emotional resilience. And what is that? Well, psychological resilience, which you do have if you can embrace uncertainty and you can learn to have, but it's never not feeling the fear. It's understanding that your brain is responding to something it doesn't like, not knowing what's happening next. And your brain, it wants you to stay safe. That's its real job. And so it's kicking off this alarm in your head saying, you know, avoid, run, have a glass of wine and forget about it. But actually, the resilience comes from being, okay, this is how I'm responding. This is how my nervous system is responding. And, you know, we respond to uncertainty. It becomes a feeling because we, our whole nervous system, our, you know, our heart starts to beat. We're breathing faster. And actually, it's about acknowledging that and knowing that you then have these sort of conscious choices to readdress the way you see the future and have a look at where your opportunity might be. And that's the resilience. It's knowing how to handle that and how to actually think more sort of realistically and reasonably see over your negativity bias uh, to sort of take positive steps to the future. 
when I talk to people about quitting their job, for example, it's such a kind of strange one because you have to have a certain amount of certainty to know, you know, that you need to pay your bills and all that real logistical important stuff versus this need to take risk. Otherwise, your life can become quite stagnant. And I think we're in the great resignation, it's called at the moment, like everyone is changing up their lives. And it's quite exciting. I find it exciting from the outside looking in. But then to a lot of people, that is such great uncertainty. But surely we've got a new lease of life for it now. Well, this is exactly it. And it's why I think there's a chance to expand the conversation. Resilience will get you so far. And resilience is an absolutely essential trait for many, many people getting through the day to day. So I wouldn't want to belittle it. But I also know that a lot of people have felt that resilience or hasn't quite met the mark over the last year. And and also a little bit like it can happen within some of the diversity or equality debates. Um, you can end up feeling responsible, you know, but by, by encouraging resilience in an organization, the in individual can begin to feel it's on, upon them when actually it's upon all of us and it's on the, on the responsibility of the organization to ease the, the pressure around it. So by showing methods to cope with uncertainty, you're getting be beneath the, 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 the resilience. And, and this is where this crossroads opens up because all the evidence shows that there are two outcomes of uncertainty and they're, they're almost subconscious because the body recognizes uncertainty as a threat potentially long before, well, not long before, microseconds before, but before the mind even gets to it. That's where these chemical releases happen. And if you're not in control of those or you're not aware of them, those feelings that make you want to shut down, not get out of bed, don't want to show up to work today, don't speak up in a meeting, um, not like myself, you know, all of those things are a response and they come on this long line that happens, but they, they're all triggered by that first response. But the same is equally true. And, and Catherine's taught me this. The brain doesn't recognize the difference between excitement and fear. So that same threat or opportunity can come along. And actually, it begins to, to, to trigger uh, some novelty in the brain, some interest, some curiosity, and then a desire to go and attention and, and uh, a state of arousal. Now you want to go and information seek. So that this is happening. This is the, the point of it. That happens every single day on a huge and overwhelming basis. It goes towards the negative side. But it can go towards the positive, and that's our opportunity: is to literally exercise the uh, likelihood of our response to uncertainty being the exciting. This is new, and and that's when human beings historically have been at their best. I love that because anxiety for me is, and well, the meaning of anxiety is that you're scared of something that hasn't happened yet. And I used to get into these anxiety spirals of like just looking at my calendar, like the whole like six months, all of the stuff I've got in. It's not even loads, but I would just literally just go in a spiral of like what I have to do in the future. And actually a lot of this is just, well, sounds simple, but living more in the present moment. But could we talk a little bit about one of the positives, which is that um, embracing uncertainty unlocks creativity. I really love that. Yeah. And this is sort of reference to what, what Sam was just talking about. Once you sort of decide which path you're going to go down. And so we have this automatic response often towards sort of you know, running away from what we have to face and going towards safety. And that becomes very unconscious. It becomes a habit. But you can rewire yourself. You know, it's called neuroplasticity, the ability by exposing yourself to, to different stimuli and being really present, like you said, you can actually tell your brain that you're playing a different game and it starts to rewire so that when uncertainty comes along, rather than getting sort of sucked into the, that, those negative spirals, 
And, you know, there's amazing facts. We have up to 60,000 thoughts a day. 85% of them are negative. 95% are the same as you had the day before. And only three and mostly 0% of those worries come through. You know, and it's very easy to get sucked down that path. But if you go down the other path, the brain goes, okay, I can't, I can't know what's going to happen because what's called its predictive model, it's sort of the image it has of the world seems to be wrong. It's faced with the unknown. So it becomes super absorbent and it opens itself up to other ideas, other people, which is amazing because a lot of the time we seek safety with people who are like us, ideas that are like us, you know, and, and in terms of creativity, that's really limiting. So it just blows the doors open and says, right, all ideas, all people come on in. Let's let's do something really innovative to, to move forward here. And so it's incredibly creative space and it's incredibly diverse space and incredibly progressive space to be in. And I I mean, I had no idea of this. When I started uh, doing the interviews, I just thought this is pretty inspiring. It's going to help people. And I turned it into a workshop and first I did it with a group of head teachers who'd had done some work with before and they were you know coming back to September 2020 term and they're like we need something <laughs> uh, and they introduced me to someone else did some health workers and, and it just began to, to to grow right but at the time it was just these interesting stories and I was trying to find commonalities and then I interviewed Dr Ming who's a computational neuroscientist but had been near suicidal in a younger life when a man and then through gender transition and then this incredible phenomenal scientific success and at the end of that interview, she explained to me the, the neuroscience that sits behind this. And I, and I have no understanding. I mean, I'm the least academic person that there can possibly be. And it was like, well, this is what? And so neuroplasticity and this 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 link to creativity and, and how the brain then works. And she relates to it as origin stories of superheroes. That in that moment that all superheroes have when they get bitten by a radioactive spider or some terrifying event, it expands that point that Catherine made. Their predictive brain, their, their capacity to conceive what may be possible enlarges. And so their prediction brain that is going around the place, most of the time, assuming 90% of things are going to go badly, begins to consider a much greater possibility. And then I got introduced to Catherine, who then begun my proper education to science. Catherine then brought aboard um, an insanely niche department within University College London called the Decision Making in Uncertainty Laboratory, which is part of their brain sciences lab. You know, who knew? Uh, and they put these measures around this stuff that we were doing, these three different tests, and all of a sudden, this whole new world began to open up. So it wasn't just creativity, it's preference for predictability, discomfort with ambiguity, uh, decisiveness, open-mindedness. Aversion to risk, all these different dimensions that make up how likely you are either to sort of run from uncertainty or embrace it. But wow. you made the point about society, right? And then this ladders up to a really large scale and it becomes very important, both to the individual because we're looking for the next nuance in our understanding of the journey we're all in around anxiety and, and, and the, the challenges we face, the, 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 the year of resignation. But behind that, one of the things that's making us incredibly anxious is the global challenges, the societal challenges. But it's true that a society with a low tolerance to uncertainty is more likely to be misled by populist politics or conspiracy theories. And we saw that, you know, a few years ago in this country. Overall, an exhausted country at a high level of stress is going to have low tolerance to anxiety. And then recently in South Africa, the townships, there's, there was a huge and violent response by the government. The police made it very clear they weren't going to protect the township populations. But townships have a very high tolerance to uncertainty. And the looting and the rioting that was expected did not happen because the communities were able to organize themselves. So tolerance to uncertainty plays out at individual, organizational and, and societal level, which means the potential for this, certainly in face of the real large-scale uncertainty we face, is also huge. 
It's amazing hearing you talk about setting this up, though, because I know it's quite meta talking about the uncertainty you had leading to this amazing project about uncertainty. But to anyone listening who is sat at home, maybe thinking, God, I am in a really strange time in my life now. When you were feeling this way, what were some of the first steps you took? Because surely this is quite in you to be, you, you know, you're kind of inhabiting all these things. Yeah, but the I, I would I would imagine my my score on the uncertainty test was probably previously quite high, but the rug was pulled from under me, right? So my my Achilles heel would be feeling like a responsible parent. You know, I never wanted to and you know get right into the therapy of it. I didn't want to end up being a single parent because that's what I end up being, and then all of a sudden I am, and then I'm vulnerable to it. And so, you know, that whole experience everyone had, I didn't feel like working from home. I felt like I was in a disaster movie whilst drunk and baking, you know, passively aggressively, and it was a horrible time and. Nothing that anybody said really fixed matters, and I made it worse by elongating the working day and, and all of that, and then homeschooling. And the honesty of the first guy I spoke to had spent time in solitary uh, isolation, and he just sat me down and gave me this. And it was a bit trite, really, to try and write a piece about lockdown versus solitary isolation, but the advice he gave me was just uncommon and uncommonly good. And it stopped me in my tracks and, and opened up space for reflection and thought, the bit that was missing, really. And it stopped that anxiety cycle. You know, I'm sure 99% of my worries were the same as the day before and not going anywhere. Exactly that negativity bias that Catherine was talking about. And in one conversation, he gave me space. And that's how we've seen lots of this work work. The the results that we've got over three episodes of this, this what's now presented as a documentary series, um, well, I'll let Catherine say it, but they're unlike many other things you get. And so the advice from the uncertainty experts that I interviewed, I mean, saved me, really. I, I would go so far as to say. And then one of my mentors had said you get strength by giving strength and so by then turning this around and offering this as a kind of sessions whilst i was working out to other people and they were walking away going fucking hell thanks it stopped me about I can, I can breathe that you know yeah it was all on zoom at the time and no one you know needed another motherfucking zoom call but people were leaving these sessions refreshed and energized so i knew we were onto something and then working with catherine the ucl team they began to show me the results which you know were impenetrable to me <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, luckily Catherine can make the science uh, accessible. And thanks eventually. for sharing that because I think I really think that hits home for so many of us during this time. And so I feel, oh, I'm like breathing now because it does feel like we're going into a next phase. Whatever this is, this has come at the best time. The the, the facts are really clear. Most of our worries are not going to come true, and we need to reflect that. There's a huge negativity bias in our life, and one of the best ways past that is awareness. The next thing that happens is in response to fear or threat, we have these automatic, what are called safety behaviors is a psychological term. And it's when it's when you've got a glass in your hand without even realizing how that got there, or you start a fight with your partner. Why am I even having this fight? You're doing something that gets you away from the immediate threat. And it's a, it's a maladaptive pattern that we've all developed over our lives. And as soon as you spot these things, it's like whack-a-mole. You're like, oh, right, I'm doing that again. I'm doing that again. Oh, right, I'm doing that again. And then you move to the next level, which is in place of what's called safety behaviors, coping strategies. So instead I'll do that. And it becomes about choice. And and then honestly, I went from a very, very bad place, uh, feeling very on the edge to, oh, wait a minute, I can I can do this. I can make this. There's, there's good advice coming through here. And then it began to compound on its way out. And that's certainly been the case for all the people who've stayed in touch with me that have been through it. Mm. Self-sabotage is such an interesting one, isn't it? Because I have researched it a fair bit and... I remember someone saying to me that it's almost like, you know, in a crime film where you need to kind of go back to where it happened. Every time I'm trying to self-sabotage, I have to walk myself back to like, what's the trigger? Every time it's the same thing. It's kind of wild, but I feel like it is life-changing, this stuff. It absolutely is. And I think sort of, you know, just that being able to consciously 
be aware and acknowledge is a really powerful thing because so much of what happens in our head, we just let go sort of unconsciously and it becomes these habits that we think of fixed traits and they're not at all. You know, and what you, you mentioned about the collective is really important and what's been really nice about this project is, you know, and this is where we started earlier, you know, people putting their hands up and saying, actually, I'm not handling uncertainty okay. And what we've seen is that people's sort of ability to face these things when we're together in groups is actually far more powerful as well. You know, and that's been really important. And and back to the self-sabotage, you know, it really is amazing how we can be our best friend on our own sort of worst enemy, often because, you know, we're trying to keep ourselves safe. And actually, we don't want to be safe. We're living in a different world to when our brains evolved. We want to be creative. We want to be the best version of ourselves. And so a lot of the work we've been doing and one of the big insights that came out was helping people transform fear versus failure. You know, when we asked people across the series uh, what they were most afraid of, about 85% of people, you know, facing a challenge said failure. Yet when we asked them what they would uh, regret the most, you know, at the end of their days, it was missed opportunity. And it's that sort of some balance where you realize that if you don't don't sort of take that step forward, you've kind of failed already. And we're very much set up in this world to fear failure, but failure isn't a bad thing at all. Actually, missed opportunity is the bad thing. And it's about, you know, a lot of the series is about reframing things, letting getting people sort of what's called a metacognition, so an awareness of how they're thinking. And that's when, as Sam said, you have this choice and you can really start to shift things, literally rewire your brain so that one day you're not just reacting, you're being really proactive in the face of uncertainty and that's one of the really practical takeaways people have come away from watching the show with it my god faced with a short-term fear i can feel that fear and now what i need to do is project myself into the future and imagine what my regret would be if i let that fear overwhelm me now i'll have a you know try and inhabit what that regret might feel like a year from now or six months ago wow that's much greater that's much bigger than this fear is oh now this fear feels smaller i can i can begin to head towards it and uh and that comes from a guy called carl loco who at primary school was predicted Oxbridge because he was so bloody smart, he put in the top three in his London borough. In secondary school, his best friend was murdered in front of him, um, threw him off the rails, he failed his GCSEs, he's then recruited by the local gangs who also saw how smart he was. Um, in his late teens, he's on the front of the standard named as London's number one gangster, um, been shot and stabbed more time than he had birthday parties and by that point was sleeping in a bulletproof vest saw the area of his ways by early 20s um, had become a community leader working with gang intervention programs and is now in his late 20s um he was you know, just does incredible things works with branson's foundations multiple businesses he was at the markle's weddings he's just he's just an incredible incredible leader and he's one of the first interviews i did and when discussing how did you how did you learn to manage fear on the streets and one of the definitions of my uncertainty experts so that we would avoid stories of survivor bias or the kind of complexities of the ambiguities and the, the moralities. They had to demonstrate that they'd learned survival skills and been a success in the shadow. So he had been a success as a gang leader, morality excluded, but then also transitioned to a more mainstream world that we'd recognized and succeeded using the same skills. So this is, this is how I learned to tackle fear on the streets. And this is what I advocate still in boardrooms. And each one of them, so the, the guys, refugees become CEOs, the people who you know, excluded themselves from the world, who are now you know, authors and leaders, same thing. The strategies they, they learn in the shadows that have enabled them to become leading lights. 
for anyone listening who's really excited by this, how can people get involved? What platforms are you across? Because you're doing it differently as well. The documentary, the tickets, everything. Yep. So it start, we started testing it as a, as a workshop. In fact, I wrote it up as a book proposal. And then in a moment of great uncertainty, for reasons beyond my control, that, that fell apart. And um, wondering what to do. From one of the sessions, somebody had said, this, this feels more like a documentary than anything else. There's a, I've, I've done all the interviews um, on 4K uh, using different videographers, whether it's been in Kampala or um, in Erbil, Iraq, and it's pulled it all together. Um, and so I pitched it. I was nearly just nearly in a very bad financial situation, so we just decided to like launch it, call it a documentary, and put 500 tickets online so that Catherine and the scientists had something to measure as a pilot, and we formed a robust control group to one side. So it was a real, you know, yeah. valid scientific I mean, I should say, we sort of turned the whole thing, and it still is an experiment. So so when you, when you join the series, you have a test, you know, all anonymised at the beginning on all the dimensions of your need for uncertainty and how you face uncertainty, uh, which is then measured again at the end. So you can see, and we have been seeing, you know, we had these statistically significant results, which are phenomenal in the science world. It means it was a valid experiment and it actually scientifically worked. People's sort of tolerance for uncertainty were changing massively across the series. And then six weeks later, those changes were still there. So it's still an experiment. And anyone who joins can have all those measurements tested and find out about themselves. And, you know, as, as the sort of, you know, as people come to the doors, it's, it's well, it is becoming the sort of largest, the world's largest experiment in uncertainty. Um, yeah. I love it when you say that because you say it, which makes me think, right, must, <laughs> must be true. And then the last three tickets to the pilot were bought by three Netflix execs. And, and you know what this is like. Like I'm presenting it like it's this big thing because of me in my kitchen, right? This little studio that I've built. Um, like Bo Burnham. Have seen that? <laughs> I was like, but it looked, oh, right, brilliant. We sold the last tickets. I wonder who they were to. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And they watched all three episodes and then they got in touch with these two incredible um, uh, women at Netflix. And they said, we think this is fantastic. What do you need to, to take this to the next level? We'd like to put our executives on it. We've been looking for some training around uncertainty. Um, and I said, this is what I need to try and take it to the next level. And so they bought, they pre-ordered the first few hundred tickets, which enabled me to then get it up and running, which enabled Catherine to bring more interesting people aboard. And we've now, they also gave me advice on everything from scripts to production. So it's, it's not a Netflix show, but it, it's certainly evolved a whole heap. So it's out in November. It's a live series. Uh, you can buy tickets for it now. Um, and it's three-part episode, so you have to sign up. It's live. There's no getting away from that. You can't watch it again. There's no binging. You know, it's like the old days when you have to show up at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night. It's actually on a Tuesday. Um, but you can choose a screening time. And in between, you get, there's, Catherine's got a mini series of content where she brilliantly explains the scientific constructs in there. There's, there's further surveys and quizzes if people really want to get into it. And as Catherine says, you take a score beforehand and a score at the end. And thus far, we are moving everybody's need for certainty uh, and they're increasing their tolerance to uncertainty up by a significant dimension. Really exciting. Well, anyone listening who wants to get involved, I will leave all the links below to everything so you can sign up really does sound like it's for absolutely everyone because when you were speaking I was imagining like CEOs sat in their corner offices freaking out right now to people who are just wanting you know some sort of change in their life to to absolutely everyone oh can I say yeah there's a really important point thank you Emma um so yes some big corporates have bought tickets uh, Netflix and Google and Lego you know some really cool fun people have signed up because they recognize the opportunity for innovation in here um, there's been lots of, of key workers and people who've been part of my journey as well. And lots of the work of Beam Pirate was in that space. So they've already signed up. Lots of individuals have signed up. Um, and then there is also a, uh, an opportunity at the checkout. If you've had as tough a year as I had, um, you can put in a code that's there and you, you'll pay like 
20 quid or something and you can come aboard as well so um hopefully it really is open and expansive to everybody who feels like they might need it that's amazing can't think of anyone who wouldn't want to sign up to that to be honest and if you are so certain i'm jealous <laughs> of that outlook we'll get there um but thank you so much both of you for joining and um well, i'm really excited to take I to hope sign you up. i hope you come along i i absolutely will i've done the test and i'm gonna follow it up See you thank there. you so much thank you 